Today's message has been brought to you by Faith Family Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, visit faithfamilybillings.com. I did just want to kind of share my story with you tonight. Um, I wasn't born like this, and we'll, we'll get into the details of that. And I've, well, when I say we'll get into the details, we're not going to get into all of the details. Um, I've had eight or nine people over the years pass out while I've been sharing my testimony. And that's a little bit rude. Um, <clears throat> it's distracting, and so don't do it. Um, if you do it, I will, I'll, I'll kick you. I mean, let's just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna kick you. Um, no, I won't kick you. I, like I said that one time at a church, like, Hey, if you pass out, I'm going to kick you. And then a lady passed out. I'm like, gosh, now I got to go kick her. But <clears throat> I didn't kick her. But when they were taking her out of the service, I was like, please, somebody tell her I didn't kick her while she was asleep. Um, but I won't go into a whole lot of details. I'll give you enough details that, so that you know what's going on. I'm not showing pictures. I used to show pictures, and that's just a bad idea. Um, but I'm, I'll, I'll give you enough details so that you know what's going on, but not enough that you should pass out. Um, and we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. But it all started, the day I lost my arm was July 22nd, 1993. Um, I was one of eight college students, or soon-to-be college students, who was working at a glass plant in my hometown of Laurenburg, North Carolina. And basically, I was working two jobs at the time. I had been working at Taco Bell for two years. I was the annoying guy that when you came through the drive-thru, I'm like, welcome to the border, can I take your order? You know, that was, that was who I was. And um, they were like, just give me a taco and shut up, you know. But I'd been working that job for like two years, but then my dad told me, my dad had, was working out at this factory, and he said, you know, they were looking for some summer help, and he said, would you be interested? And I'm like, well, how much are they paying? And it was like double what I was getting paid to make tacos. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so I was actually working both jobs. Um, I would work, you know, during the week at the glass plant on the weekend making tacos. And so, but it was my 10th day on the job is the day that I got hurt, and what we were doing the day I got hurt, we were working in an area of the plant called the silos. And this is where the whole glassmaking process started. Uh, I don't know how it works or all the details, but they had this powdery type substance that they had kind of up in the top of the silos, and they would drop it down this thing onto a conveyor belt. And then the conveyor belt would start turning, and it would push this powder. You know, And I don't know why they did it that way, but that's how they did it. So the plant had been open at this point for like 23 to 25 years, something like that. And if you can think about that powder hitting that conveyor belt, the dust billowing up and settling on the floor over 25 years or so, in some areas the powder was caked about six inches deep. Um, especially where like people were walking and they're stepping and they're packing it down. So it actually got to be like really hard chunks. So... Our job was to take shovels and bust the debris up on the floor, uh, load it into wheelbarrows. From there, we would take our, the wheelbarrows from our job site to a machine called a screw auger where we would dump the debris in, and then we would turn around and go back, and that's what we were doing all day long. Now, it was my 10th day on the job, but it was my first day working in this area. We had been working in another area of the factory uh, for the first eight days. Then the ninth day, they kind of split our team up, and me and a couple other guys were actually up in the top of the silos working up there while everybody else worked down on the bottom. 
So my 10th day on the job is the, is the first day that I'm at this job site. And I either, you, you had one of four jobs when you're working out um, that day out in the silos. You either had a shovel in your hand, busting the debris up, and loading it into wheelbarrows. You were the guy running the wheelbarrow from the job site to the screw auger and back. There was another guy whose job was to stand at the base of the screw auger, and his job is make sure everything goes down okay. And then there was another guy at the other end of the auger. The auger went up a flight of steps and would dump the contents into a dumpster. Well, his job was to take a shovel or a rake and push the debris to the back of the dumpster. Well, let me ask you this real quick, and I think the number's probably going to be higher here than most places. How many of y'all know what a screw auger is? Okay. Yeah, it's definitely more here than most places. Okay, for those of you who don't, how many of y'all know what a screw is? Okay, better. All right. How many of you, you're not going to raise your hand no matter what question I ask? Anybody? Anybody? There's always somebody. Um, well, if you don't know what a screw auger is, it's basically a giant screw with a casing that goes around the outside of it. So when you dump anything down into the threads of this giant screw, as it turns, it pushes it up this shaft and then it drops it into a dumpster on the other end. Well, we had been working up until our lunch break and I had either had a shovel in my hand, busting the debris up and loading it into the wheelbarrow, or I had been running the wheelbarrow back and forth from our job site. And so we went to lunch and when we came back, everybody was like, hey, everybody, let's kind of rotate jobs. Because um, honestly, the, the two jobs that I had been doing were the two toughest that you could have. The other two guys are kind of standing there most of the time waiting on a load. And so I was now the guy standing at the base of the screw auger. And again, my job is make sure everything goes down okay. They didn't say, if it doesn't go down okay, this is what you do. They just said, make sure it goes down okay. They also didn't tell us that all of the safety equipment had been removed from this piece of machinery. So y'all can kind of see where this is going. Um, there was supposed to be like a grating over the opening. And so that you couldn't get like, you know, clothing or body parts or anything like that down into the machine. But somebody had removed it because they said it slowed the job down too much. Because, you know, you have these big pieces um, but the opening on the grating was really small. And so they said it took so much longer because you had to break the pieces down into smaller pieces to get it to go down. So they had taken that off. There was also supposed to be an emergency kill string that ran up and down the side of the machine that if anything was going wrong, all you had to do was pull that string and it would shut the machine off immediately. Well, they had to remove that as well. So, I mean, we're just doing a fantastic job safety-wise. Um, so... The very first load that we did when we came back from lunch, a buddy of mine that I'd played baseball with my entire life, he loves me because he hit one home run his entire life, and I was the pitcher. Uh, <laughs> the ball bounced off the top of the fence. Like if our left field, it, that doesn't matter. Um, oh, it's, it, it still matters. Like all these years later, it still matters because he, he still talks to me about it. He's forgiven in Jesus' name. Um, but my buddy, I played baseball with my entire life. He comes up to the auger, dumps a load in, turns around and walks off. So I'm the guy now standing at the base of the auger. I look in, and I'm watching the debris go down. And then it gets to a point where I can tell that the auger is still turning underneath it. But there's a piece that was probably 
probably about the size of my Bible, maybe a little bit bigger. And it was too big to get caught in the threads like it was supposed to. So I'm watching it, hoping it's going to go down, and it's not. The machine is rotating, and I know that the next load is coming soon. And if that piece doesn't go down, then the next piece is just going to back, and it's just going to create more of a mess. So I'm thinking, well, what do I do? And my dad, like I said, he'd been working at the factory, I think, for 23 years at the time. And he told me when he got me the job, he said, it took me 23 years to earn a good reputation out here. Don't you come ruin it in one summer. I, yes, sir. Um, and so I'm thinking, get the job done. Like, whatever I have to do to get the job done, get the job done. So what I decided to do was reach in and grab that piece. And y'all can see where this is going. Don't see too much, because I do not want you to press out. Anyway, um, so I reached in to grab that piece, and when I did, we had on these gloves called gauntlet gloves. And a gauntlet glove is kind of like a regular glove, but it flares out at the wrist just a little bit. And so when I reached in and grabbed that piece, I, I felt a tug. And when I did, I just jerked back as hard as I could. And my left arm came out fine, and obviously my right arm didn't. Uh, what had happened was the, the thread of the auger had caught the corner of my glove by, it was like less than half an inch. Like, that's how close. Um, and so I'm pulling as hard as I can, trying to get my hand out of my glove. But the knuckle on my middle finger was swollen to about two or three times the size that it normally was because I was a baseball player. And one of the last games I had played, I was stealing second base, and I dove in head first, and the guy stepped on me with his metal cleat, and so it made my knuckle big. And so I had to kind of tug to get my – but anyway, the, the, the glove was cinched tight around my wrist. And the, I'll just tell you this. The machine kept rotating, and y'all could just imagine. Um, and so I started screaming, one, because it hurt, and two, because I wanted somebody to come turn the machine off because I was now being picked up off the ground and I was starting to get pulled in. I was holding on to the outside of the machine with my left arm um, and my, my right shoulder dislocated as I was being pulled in. My left shoulder dislocated as I'm hanging on to the outside. And the guy who was at the other end of the auger, he hears me yell and he turned around and he came and visited me when I was in the hospital. And he told me when I turned around, you were already halfway, like your body was going in. So he ran down, uh, ran down the stairs around the machine, turns it off, and at this point I was about six inches to a foot from being completely headfirst into the machine. So he, um, when he turned it off, I was still kind of had my, even though my shoulder had dislocated, I was still kind of hanging on, and I was able to pull myself out, and when I did, my right arm was gone. So the guy that, was, that had turned the machine off, he's standing there staring at me, and then he turns around and takes off running. And I was like, dude, where are you going? Like, I got one arm here. Um, and I was like, well, I don't know where he's going, but I know I don't want to be by myself. So I chased him. I took off running after him. <laughs> and I'm running. And you can just imagine the scene. Um, but I'm running as fast as I can. And I'm like, where am I going? And then I remembered there was an office that was about 50 to 75 yards away. And I was like, well, I don't know where he's going, but that's where I'm going because I knew maybe there would be somebody there to help me. And if not, there's a phone there and we can call and get help. So we run through the silos and we both went up this flight of stairs. And I know we were both heading to the same area at that time. So he gets to the top of the stairs and opens this door and just kind of gets out of the way. And so I just came running by him. And I ran up to the office, and there's a, a, a big window there. And I ran up to the window, 
and I just stood there looking in. I could see there was three guys in the office, and I could see them, but I had never had my arm ripped off by a machine before. I didn't really know what to do. I was freaking out just a little bit, and so I stood there just looking in. I didn't knock on the window. I didn't open the door and say, hey, does anybody have a Band-Aid or anything like that? Like, I just stood there looking in, and so eventually one of the guys saw me, and he turned, and he, he yelled at one of the guys, said, call for help. And so he ran out, and he tackled me to the ground. Seemed a little rude at the time, but he told me later, he said, the reason why I tackled you, he said, you were in such shock. He said that I was scared that you were going to take off running again, and who knows what would have happened. So he gets me down on the ground, and he's, he doesn't know what to do. And so, but he knows there are paper towels in the office where he was just at. So he yells at the guys, and the two guys had already told him before he went outside, we can't go out there because we can't handle the sight of blood. So he's like, that's fine. Just If I need something, just listen. And so he's out there, and he goes, I need paper towels. So the door of the office opens. A hand comes out holding a single paper towel. And so they put it on my arm, and it's immediately soaked through. He's like, I need more paper towels. Again, a hand comes out with a single paper towel. And he said, I need the whole, and he wasn't a believer at the time, so he said some words, roll. And so the guy literally ripped the paper towel dispenser off the wall and shoved it out. And so he's wrapping my arm in paper towels. One of the next people that got to me was actually the last baseball coach I ever had, and he was in the uh, Navy, and so he actually played the role of a human tourniquet because he knelt down beside me, and he took his arm, his hand and stuck it under my arm, my armpit, and just squeezed as tight as he could, just trying to slow the blood loss however he could. The, one of the next people that got to me was my dad. He ran up. He had been in a meeting in the front office, and somebody just a, a call went out that one of the college students had been hurt. And so everybody was just trying to get to the silos as quickly as possible. And so he gets out there and he sees me laying on the ground and he had a pager on his hip and he just, he took it off and he just turned and he threw it across the silo. It hit the, there's, there was actually a train in there because the trains would come in and, and drop the, that powdery type substance off. He threw his pager and it shattered when it hit the train and then he kind of walked off. And he was in shock because he didn't know what to do. The next guy that got to me played a key role in saving my life. Um, I'm laying there on the ground, looking up at the ceiling. My baseball coach is here with his knee pressed up against my face so that I wouldn't look over there anymore. And the next guy, he comes running from that side. And the next thing I know, he's standing up over me, looking down at me. And he starts taking his belt off. And I was like hang on, it's not that kind of party, man. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what, what you're thinking about, but let's keep our pants on, you know. But what he did is he took his belt off and he wrapped it around my arm and cinched in a tourniquet as tight as he could. I, left it, I had a scar on the back of my shoulder for the longest time from that. Um, and then the guy who was holding my arm, he walked over to my dad because they were really good friends. He's like, you know, Jeff needs you. And so my dad walked over, and he knelt down beside me, and he grabbed my hand, and he said, let's pray. And so laying there on the floor of the factory, we said the Lord's Prayer together. A little while later, the amb an ambulance uh, backs in. 
they load me up on the ambulance and take me to the local hospital. Um, the local hospital had already called ahead to have a helicopter come down and get me because they knew that a case like mine they wouldn't be able to handle. So I get to the emergency room at the local hospital, and then they're loading me up on a gurney, taking me out to the helicopter. And I hear them say you know, that they were taking me to Duke University Medical Center. Well, as you already know, I'm a North Carolina Tar Heel fan. The last place a Tar Heel fan wants to go is anything with the name Duke in it. Like, I was like, if they take me there, they're gonna try to, if they find I'm a Carolina fan, they're going to try to kill me, you know? Like, I mean, they already root for the devil. Like, <clears throat> I don't care what color the devil is. If it's red, blue, green, or purple, a devil's the devil. I'm like, and I'm like, well, I said, if they can take me there and, and reattach my arm, I'll, I'll shake their hand. I'm still not going to pull for their basketball team, but I will shake their hand. And so they load me up on the helicopter, fly me up to Duke. They had to fly around two thunderstorms to, to get me there. A flight that was supposed to take like 30 or 45 minutes ended up taking an hour and a half because they're trying to avoid these storms. I've already lost the arm, and then we're going to get zapped by lightning and hit the ground. You know, like what, what else is going to happen? So they get me to Duke University Medical Center. They get me into the OR, and by the time... They got me into the OR at, at Duke. I had lost three-fourths of my blood. And so uh, they take me into surgery, and, you know, they're preparing me for surgery. And they were giving me the anesthesia, and they told me, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna, to you know, put you to sleep now. Um, start counting backwards from 100. Well, I freaked out because I was scared that if I closed my eyes, they would never open again. So I started fighting trying to fight. They had me strapped down, and I'm trying to get up, and I can't move. And so at that point, I knew I just needed to count backwards from 100. So I think I said, whoa. I think that's about as far as I got. I didn't even get one. I got whoa, and I was gone. Um, and I was in surgery for 13 hours, um, and they were trying to figure out a way to reattach my arm, but that decision had kind of already been made because once they cinched the tourniquet around my arm with the belt, that, you know, kind of kills a lot of the, there's really no chance to reattach because of the arteries and vessels and everything getting damaged. And so they couldn't reattach my arm. And so my parents, you know, were in the, in the waiting room praying and praying, you know, please let them be able to reattach his arm. And so they came out to talk to my family and they're like, Jeff's arm, like, even if, they hadn't put the tourniquet on. My, my arm was so mangled from going through the machine. They said his arm was so damaged, like, there's nothing that could be done. They said, but his right hand made it all the way through the machine with no problem. And that was because the way the, the machine grabbed my glove, my hand stayed right next to the thread as it went through the machine, so it never got injured. So they said, um, so if you want we can attach his right hand to the end of his arm. And so my family was like, okay, well, will, he, will he be able to use it? And the surgeon was like, well, probably not, but it's never been done before. Well, I'm kind of thinking there's a reason it's never been done before. <laughs> Just to have a hand, like, attached right here, like, I go walk around clapping like a seal and like, 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 come on now, let's. No, so my family was like, no, let's don't do that. And so what they did because I I had more, 
I, my skin had been ripped up further than my bone had. And so what they were able to do was cut the palm of my right hand off and attach it here so that I wasn't having to get like extensive skin grafts on the rest of my body. So I was in surgery for, like I said, 13 hours. Then I was in the hospital for 16 days because before my accident, I was right-handed. And people were like, well, now you're left-handed. And I'm like, well, actually, I'm only handed, but, you know, whatever. (laughs) Semantics. Um, And so I was having to learn how to live my life all over again um, because my left arm didn't do anything but assist my right arm. I didn't know how to do anything left-handed, so I had to learn how to, like, brush my teeth, get dressed, like everything with one hand now. And so I was, like I said, I was in the hospital for 16 days. And then when I got out of the hospital, I started college 16 days later. I still didn't have the ability to write. I looked like a kindergartner learning to write. You know, you know how when you're in kindergarten, I don't know if y'all did, but when I was a kindergartner, they had those pencils that were like the size of a sequoia and you wrote with it like that for whatever reason. But, but I was having to learn how to write. And so I started college without the ability to write. Um, I only took two classes. I was supposed to be going to Appalachian State, uh, but because of my accident and I was having to have follow-up surgeries and things like that, I went to a local college that was only 15 minutes from my hometown and took two classes there. Then after one semester, I transferred up to App. Um, And I went up to App State. You know, most people go choose their colleges because they know what their their major is going to be. And so this, this school has this program and this school has this program. Well, App had my friends. And that was the reason why I chose App. My two best friends were going to App um, and a bunch of my other friends. And a guy, another guy that I played baseball with my whole life, he and I were roommates. And he was actually one of those really good athletes who was just good at everything. So he had actually been recruited by App State as a kicker. So he was the punter and the kicker. And so he and I being roommates, he had all these football players who were his friends. And so I kind of became their friend by default because they would come over and hang out with him and so we ended up hanging out and so anytime they were going to go do something they would always invite me to go um, and they, they didn't look at me as handicapped and I don't look at myself as handicapped either I mean yeah it probably takes me twice as long to tie my shoes but it takes me half as long to wash my hands um, <laughs> and so one, of the, one day they were going to go play basketball and they're like Jeff do you want to go play with us and I was like, sure, I'll go. I mean, I'm not the best basketball player in the world, but I'm not the worst either. You know, I got a really good crossover. Some of y'all will probably get that on the way home. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I'll go play. And so we go up to the gym at um, App State. And at, at uh, the gym, there were four full-court basketball courts, and there's a track that was going around that people were walking and running on. And so we're, we're kind of just shooting around before the game starts, just kind of getting warmed up. And so I started counting to see how many players we had, you know, because we're going to run a full court game, so we needed 10 players. So I started counting, and we had 11. I was like, that means out of these 11 people, one of us is not going to get picked. I wonder who that's going to (laughs) be. I was looking around. I was hoping there was a guy there with no arms, but there wasn't. And so sure enough, they picked teams, and I didn't get picked. And so my buddies that were playing, they said, hey, you'll get in next game. I was like, you know, totally fine. I've kind of expected it once I saw how many players we had. And so I grabbed, a, I grabbed a ball, and I just went over on another goal and was just kind of over there shooting by myself. I would watch them play for a little while, and then I would um, shoot a little bit, just kind of back and forth doing that. And, but I noticed that as I'm shooting, 
you know, there's these people that are walking and running on the track, and typically it looked like this, like, I'd be shooting over here, and so they would walk by, and they would glance, and they'd look back down, and then they would immediately look back, and I was like, I get it. It's not every day you see a one-armed guy shooting basketball. You're not sure if that's what you saw, so you look back. It happened. Every, everybody that came by, it happened. They looked. Every, every single person. But by the second lap, they didn't care anymore. They, would, they might glance, but not as like staring at me, but just look over and keep going. But there was one girl who, when she, when she got to my court, she glanced at me, she looked back down, and then she stared at me the whole time she walked by my court. And I was like, you know, I get it. One-armed guy shooting basketball doesn't happen every day, blah, blah, blah. The next time she gets to my court, as soon as she gets to my court, she stares at me, and she's walking slow and stares at me the entire time she walks by. I'm like, okay, like, you're in college. This shouldn't be that big of a deal. Like, just keep it moving. The third time she gets to my court, when she gets there, she is walking so slow, she's almost walking backwards. And I'm like, why are you staring at me so much? Like, get over it. And so I, like, every lap that she went by my court, she's staring at me. And after a while, I started getting the mad. I wanted to be like, come get you some. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want to get beat up by a girl, so I didn't do that. But I was thinking, why are you staring so much? Like, what is wrong with you? But then after like probably the 10th, 11th lap, the guy in me kicked in. I was like, wait a minute. Maybe she's checking me out, you know? <laughs> she wasn't. Um, <laughs> but that's, I was like, maybe she's checking me out. And so I was like, okay, well, how can I get her to come talk to me? Because I was, I, when I lost my arm, I lost a whole lot of other stuff, self-confidence and all this kind of stuff that went with it. I was like, I, there's no way I was going to go talk to her, so how could I get her to come talk to me? And so what I decided to do, I'd been shooting kind of around the free throw line, and so I decided I would go right over on the baseline where I'm not far from the track. That way she doesn't have as far to walk to come talk to me. And so as soon as I went over there, the first lap that she came by, there was these nets that hung down between the courts and the track to keep the basketballs from bouncing out there. So she moves the net out of the way, and she comes up and starts talking to me. And I could tell, you know how when you're talking to somebody, you can tell they just want to ask you a question. I'm like, she wants to ask me a question. I was like, she's going to ask me out. Just go ahead and ask me out. I'll say yes. Just do it. <clears throat> so she starts, you know, talking. And, you know, I was wondering, you know, if, if you might want to. And I'm like, here it comes. She said, go to church with me sometime. And I was like, <laughs> no. Um, I didn't say that out loud, but that's what I was thinking. Because, like, my entire life, I had been in church. My entire life. I went to church three years in a row and did not miss a Sunday. Like, I was in church. I tell people I had a drug problem growing up because if the doors of our church were open, my mom drugged me to church. Like, <clears throat> I was always in church, always. And when I lost my arm, I got really mad at God, really mad at God. Like, God, how can you do this to me? I was in church my whole life life and this is what you do to me but I want to tell you something here and Pastor Sean kind of stole it a little bit but he quoted this verse already but John 10 10 says it's the enemy I'll repeat that in case you missed it the enemy comes to steal kill and destroy it didn't say Jesus 
comes to steal, kill, and destroy to teach us a lesson so our faith will grow. It says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So for the longest time, I was mad at God. I, I, I used to say that I had a shouting match in my car with God, but we didn't because he didn't shout back. Thank goodness, that would have freaked me out. Um, but, I mean, we, I, I let him have it. My whole life I went to church and this is what happens to me. You go your way, I'll go mine. I was done. But that was my own stupidity. Because I'd been in church my entire life, and I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. There's a huge difference between knowing about him and knowing him. Like, I know about Heidi. Awesome. Sweet. Don't get on her bad side at the hotel. <laughs> she will chop you in the throat if she has to. I'm just kidding. She didn't chop anybody in the throat. But she might have wanted to. Um, so, but I know about Heidi. But I know my wife. Favorite color. Favorite food. Food she hates, cantaloupe, by the way, in case you're wondering. Cantaloupe and olives. So, but that's the same thing. Like, some, a lot of people know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And that's where I was. And so, I didn't know that, I didn't know John 10 10 at the time. So, I was like, all right, God, you go your way, I go mine. I'm done with you. That's it. That's it. So, when this girl, this stranger, invited me to church, She's like, would you like to go to church with me? And I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is simple. The answer is obviously no. So I was like, sure. <laughs> and at that moment, I'm thinking, what in the heck did I just say? Like, the answer was no. And neither one of those letters came out of my mouth. It was sure. I was like, shoot, now I got to go because I'm one of those people, if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. So I'm like, all right, I'll go. So I was just going to go just because I told her that I would, you know, go. So now I was raised, just out of curiosity, anybody here raised Methodist? Okay, one, two. All right, two of us. All right, we're the Trinity. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm fourth. Um, but I was raised Methodist, and at, at my Methodist church, I don't know what y'all's was like, but on this side... We had an organ, and on that side we had a keyboard. No, a piano. Organ and piano. And at the beginning of the service, the pianist, well, I guess she was an organist, because she would play the organ. About halfway during the service, she would get up and walk around to the other side barefooted and come over to the piano and finish out the service on the piano. Like, I don't know, that's just how we rolled in the Methodist church at my church. Like, that's just what we did. So when I walked into this church, it, it looked like... The stage looked a lot like I'm seeing instruments. And I'm thinking, they must have had a concert in here last night or something because I've never seen an instrument in a church that wasn't a piano or an organ. And so the, the girl comes you know, and finds me, and we go sit down, and I'm in the middle of all the college students. And there was, there was, quite a, there was probably 30 or 40, which kind of blew me away. I didn't know college students went to church. And so they started. I didn't know it was called praise and worship. I called it the fast music and the slow music. And so they started the fast music, and literally everybody around me starts jumping up and down. And I'm like, what in the heck is going on in here? 
Like, I didn't jump at the Methodist church. I'd get a spanking if I jumped in the Methodist church. <laughs> so I'm like, what is, but I'm literally looking around me and like everybody's jumping. And I'm like, well, I look like the weirdo because I'm the only one not jumping. So I was like, all right, this is what I'll do. I'm going to go up off of my toes and come right back. I'm not leaving the ground. And so I hopped. Like, just <laughs> this is what I gave him. And so then the, the fast music ended and the slow music started. And everybody around me starts lifting their hands up in the air. And I'm like, what are y'all doing? Like, I didn't even hear the question. And like, everybody else is like, <laughs> I, I'm, I mean, I'm clued. I'm like, I, what? So I'm like, again, I'm the only one because I'm, I'm like looking around because I don't know the church etiquette, you know, and I'm seeing a bunch of stuff I'd never seen before. So I'm like, well, shoot, I need to raise my hand too. So I'm like, all right, I'll give it one of these. So I'm, I'm, I'm literally like this. I'm like, all right, I've got my hand up, but they shouldn't call on me because they shouldn't be able to see my hand because <laughs> I don't know what the question is, much less the answer. So I'm just like, I'm right here. So... At the end of praise and worship, everybody sits down. So I, I, I sit down, and the, a missionary from Africa gets up and starts preaching. And so I'm listening. And, but you got to remember, I'm still really mad at God. Like, you know, I see all these people, you know, jumping and raising their hands for whatever reason. I don't know. But, like, as far as I was concerned, God took my arm. So, like, I was mad. So this missionary gets up, and he had been a missionary in Africa for, like, ever, like, I'm pretty sure he invented Africa. Like, that's how long he had been a missionary over there in Africa. And he starts talking about all the amazing things he'd seen God do on the mission field. So he's like, I've seen dead people raised to life. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm mad. I don't care. He's like, I've seen blind eyes open. I was like, I don't care. He's like, I've seen deaf people able to hear again. Do not care. He's like, I've seen arms grow out. I was like, you saw what? <laughs> like, is there like a sign-up sheet for that or something? Because like, I need two and nobody in here needs three. So like, so now I'm paying attention to what this guy has to say because I, I had already made it up in my mind. I was like, okay, I'm getting my arm back. Service will probably end around nine. It's a four-hour drive home. I'll wake mom up and be like. Now, let me tell you. I didn't get my arm back, and then I, like, lost it again. Like, I'm like, man, he's really bad with right arms. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> it, it didn't go down like that. Um, but now this guy's got my attention because I'm like, I've got to pay attention and find out what I have to do to get my arm. And so I'm listening to every word out of his mouth now. And he starts talking about the goodness of God. And John 10.10, 10, and I'm like, the goodness of God? Like, I'm mad at God because he took my arm and he's talking about a God that gives them back. I was like, something doesn't match up here. And again, I was wrong. I didn't know that it was the enemy. You know, God gets blamed for everything and gets credit for nothing. And so, like, I was so mad at him, but it was just the enemy doing his job. And so, but he starts talking about the goodness of God. And at the end of the service, he gives an altar call for anybody who would like to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so the college girl sitting next to me, she leans over. She goes, are you a Christian? I was like, yeah, I think so. Now, this is the guy who told God, you go your way, I'm going mine. But yeah, I think so. She goes, why do you think you're a Christian? And I was like, well, I went to church my whole life. Three years in a row, didn't miss a Sunday. I used to be the president of our church's youth group. And I even had speaking 
parts in the church, which meant that I was in the Christmas and Easter play as a kid. Um, <laughs> and she goes, but notice the word that never came out of my mouth was Jesus. I listed off all my qualifications. I'm a, I didn't say it, you know, but you'll hear people say, well, I'm a good person. Who cares? <clears throat> and so she was like, would you like to go forward just to be sure? And I was like, yeah, it won't hurt. So I went forward, and there was a, a row of us across the front of the church. I think there was like 15 of us that had responded to the altar call that night. And so I'm in a prayer line for the first time in my life. Now, I remember Methodist Church, you go, you kneel on a bench. Sometimes the pastor will come over. Sometimes he won't. He'll let you handle your business, and then you go back to your seat. Well, I'm now standing in, at the front of this church, and so uh, the missionary leads us all in the sinner's prayer. And he's like, now I want to come down and pray for each one of you individually. I was like, okay. So I'm standing there, and I'm down on this end, and he started on that end. So when he comes off the stage, I didn't know prayer line etiquette that you're just supposed to kind of stand there and look forward. So I was curious as to what he was doing. So I kind of leaned forward and looked down just to see what was going on. And I saw him walk up, and he put his hands on somebody's head. And I immediately stood back up. And I was like, God, don't let him touch me. I was, I was really weird about it at the time. I didn't like being touched. I, after my accident, I was claustrophobic for a while. I didn't like feeling confined. and I'm not that way anymore, but then especially, I didn't want people touching me. Um, so I'm like, just God, just don't let him touch me. And so he keeps working his way closer and closer to me. I was like, God, you know, I know we just got cool and all, but please, like, don't let him touch me. And so then he gets like, right next, he's the person right next to me, and I close my eyes, and I'm thinking, maybe if I close my eyes, he won't see me, and so I'm standing there with my eyes closed, and then he's right in front of me, and he puts his hands on my head, and the next thing I knew, I was laying on the ground, and now I'm like, he seemed like such a nice man, and he just pushed me down on the ground in church, that's kind of rude, you know, like, I had never seen somebody's slain in the spirit before and like I don't know if you've ever experienced it but like when the power of God comes on you so strong that you have no choice you're going down well that's what happened to me well I didn't know that's what was going on I thought he pushed me down so I'm laying there on the floor and I'm mad because my mom used to say always get off the floor when we were in church get off the floor so I like <laughs> I knew I'm not supposed to be on the floor but I'm laying there but then I hear something really close to me and so I kind of roll my head over and I open this eye up and there was somebody laying on the floor next to me. I was like, well, that's interesting. So I closed that eye, and I rolled my head over this way, and I opened up this eye, and there was somebody laying next to me on the floor over here. I'm like, well, I guess that's just what they do at this church. You know, you just <laughs> you lay on the floor, and the buzzer goes off when you're done, and you just go back to your seat. Like, like I legit had no clue what was going on, like clueless. But the guy who walked down that aisle, and the guy who got up off the floor and went back to his seat were two completely different people. I had struggled with so much after my accident. I was mad at everybody. I, I just, I hated my life. There was times I just wanted to, I literally wanted to commit suicide because I just, I hated my life so much. I always wanted to play college baseball. And then I lost my, my arm four days before my college orientation. And so, like, I was I I hated life. And but then I gave my life to Jesus and my life changed. Like it was just one of the most amazing things. Like 
I remember when I, when I went back to my seat, like I felt different. And I was like, God, I don't know what's going on, but this is, this is pretty awesome. And so I started going to a campus ministry there at Appalachian State and started learning more about God and things like that. And, you know, reading my Bible in the mornings, just learning who I am in Christ and things like that. Well, we were, there are times that our campus ministry, like some of the leaders would go down to youth events and, and, you know, like some of them might speak, some of them might be like little counselors or they'll pray with people and stuff like that. And so the guy who was like getting people for this trip, he said, Jeff, will you go on this trip? And I said, sure, you know, I'll go. And so I went and so we get there and he's like, Jeff, will you share your testimony? And like once he explained to me what a testimony was, I was like, I can do that. Like basically just talk about what Jesus has done in your life. And so I got up that night. There was like 200 kids there. And I got up and I was so nervous I could not hold the microphone. I would have given myself a black eye. I was shaking so bad. And um, so he stood next to me and held the microphone in front of my mouth. And so I don't know what I talked about. I might have talked about monkeys riding roller coasters for all I know. But like I, I literally do not know any of the words. I'm sure at one point I said Jesus probably said God probably said arm. But other than that, I don't know. Um, But when I got done, he took the microphone back and he was standing there next to me, put his arm around me, and he said, you heard what Jesus did in Jeff's life. How many of you would like the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And out of all of those 200 kids, one little 13-year-old boy who was sitting in the far back corner gets up out of his seat and comes and stands right in front of us and prays the sinner's prayer. And I didn't even really know it was a prayer, but looking back on it, I know it was. And I was like, God, that was really cool. If you want me to do that again, I will. And that was in 1996. We've kind of been going ever since. And um, like I told you, I just want to make heaven crowded. I know what Jesus has done in my life. I know the person that I was. All the stuff that I've been through, all the ways that I hurt him. And Jesus loved me enough to die on the cross for me and my sins. So I had an opportunity a little while later, it was the next year, I had an opportunity to speak at this big event. And there was going to be like 700 people there. And through a series of events, God told me, when you get up there, you'll know what to say. I was like, all right, God, I trust you. And so at the very beginning of this event, I would have been sitting in the fourth seat on this side, and there was a table that was lined up right here, and it had seven candles on that table. And at the beginning of the service, they started lighting these seven candles. And I heard a couple people kind of starting to cry. And I'm like, so I leaned over to the girl who had kind of was one of the ones who helped put the event on, and I was like, why are they lighting candles? And she said that at that time in the last six months, they had had seven teenagers die by either suicide or car accident. And so they were kind of doing that part as a memorial for them, but also doing it as an outreach to the community. And so when she said that, I was like, okay. And so I stood back up, and then the next thing I know, I started crying. I was like, well, that, that's interesting, because I've, I've never cried a lot. Um, but I was like... You know, anytime somebody dies, it's sad. 
but especially a young person because they never really had a shot at life. But the next thing I knew, like, I was sobbing. I was sitting fourth seat over here, head between my knees, and I was bawling my eyes out. And I'm supposed to speak in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And I am sitting over here sobbing. And everybody around me, they're reaching around me, touching me, praying for me. Lord, calm him down. He's got to speak in just a little bit. Like, do something. So even though I hadn't been, I still hadn't been a Christian for very long, I mean, just a little over a year, I knew that God was dealing with me about something. So I prayed a really deep spiritual prayer. If you want to take notes here, like you can, it's in the Bible somewhere. I said, God, what's up? That's deep right there. Like, that should be a book. Uh, it's in the Bible. Like, it's either first or second hesitations. I'm not sure. But <clears throat> I said, God, what's up? And God spoke to me just real soft. Like, you always ask me, why me? I'm like, yep. I, did. I asked God, why me? Always. I gave God a list of candidates who were more qualified to lose their arm than I was. Like, there was one guy in particular, like, God, why not him? Like, oh, it made me so mad. But he said, you never ask me why I let you live that day. All right. God, why did you let me live that day? Why didn't I just die and go on to heaven and be with you? And he spoke to me. So, like, when I say spoke to me, I mean, I heard it. Like, this hasn't happened to me, this is the only time, it, but I heard it with my physical ears to the point that I looked, there was one girl sitting here and one girl sitting here, I was like, did you hear that? She's like, I didn't hear anything. And I, looked, I was like, did you hear that? She's like, I hear you crying, and I'm like, shut up. Uh, I was like, you didn't hear anything? She's like, I didn't hear anything. But God spoke to me, I mean, like y'all hear my voice, like I heard it. I mean, I sat up. Like somebody had just, he spoke so clear. And he said, if you would have died that day, you would have gone to hell. And it floored me. Because my whole life I was in church. Everybody in my high school knew me as the good Christian kid. My senior year of high school, one of my classes that I took, our teacher who was a believer, she had a list of 18 things. And you had to list them in the number of what was most important to you. Number one being the most important, number 18 being the least important. There were things on there like making a lot of money, uh, getting married, um, finding happiness in life, all these kind of things. Out of every single one of her students that year, one student put eternal life and salvation as the most important thing to them. And that was me. But just because eternal life and salvation was the most important thing to me didn't grant me eternal life and salvation. Just because I went to church for three years in a row without missing a Sunday does not grant me salvation. 
The Bible says in John 14, 6, Jesus speaking, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So at that moment, I, I knew what I was supposed to share that night. So I got up and I shared that I was on my way to hell and had no idea. And when God spoke that to me, I got scared. One, because like I could have been burning in hell at that moment. And then I got scared for a different reason. I'm like, God, how many people are out there like I was? They're on their way to hell and they don't know. So I spoke that night. Another guy got up after me and he spoke. At the altar call, we saw 72 kids give their lives to Jesus. And I prayed a prayer that night. And I said, God, I'll do this every day for the rest of my life if it keeps one person from going to hell. And that's why I travel and do what I do. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. If you would like more information about Faith Family Church, including service times and location, visit faithfamilybillings.com.